Thanks for joining us today on BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the newsroom of Business in Vancouver. I'm Kurt LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief. My guest today barely takes a breath in his life without creating something, a documentary, a column, a book, a podcast, a stir, as one of the world's most cited economics uh, experts. Uh, he's an economist whose career has taken him through the Central Bank of Ireland, the UBS Bank, and the Banque Nationale de Paris. He saw the light realized that journalism was the much higher calling. So he now crafts a couple of columns a week. He's produced five books, a batch of documentaries, and a podcast, which uh, when I last looked it up, was ranked in the top six in his native Ireland. Um, the reason is that David McWilliams works endlessly, endlessly to help us understand economics. He's popularized them in part with clear language and, and not always taking them super seriously. He's the founder of Kilconomics, a festival which blends discussion with stand-up comedy. And he leads the Global Irish Forum, more serious affair on the economy every year. Even though he's avowedly nonpartisan, he's scorned many bad policies and predicted many problematic conditions. And he's gonna be the featured speaker at the virtual January 14th Chartered Financial Analyst Vancouver Conference. He joins me today from Dublin for a preliminary round, a tune-up. Hi, David. Kirk, how are you? Good, in lockdown, are we? Oh, we're in full lockdown now. We are in full lockdown simply because Ireland's cases went from being the best in Europe to the worst in uh, 10 days. And I think the moral of the story there is, Kirk, is don't let the Irish out of Christmas. We're, we're, we are not the race. To, you, you have a reputation. You have a reputation and the idea of letting us out and allowing us to go to the bars and chat to each other. Anyway, the long and the short of it is we are now locked down in quite a serious lockdown and the cases are unpleasantly high and we are, I think people are quite nervous now. People are quite yeah. nervous. Our first lockdown worked very well. The second one was okay. But now there's a sense that COVID is kind of at the door. You know, you're now hearing lots and lots of family. You're hearing lots of friends. Mm. Uh, kids are coming home saying they're friends. So my son's had three tests in the last week. So, you know, it's moved from being out there to something closer to home. Yeah, um, maybe that'll eventually get us back inside uh, doing what we ought to have been doing in the first place. Listen, we're yes, possibly. we're all in the tank, I guess, in a sense. But why aren't stocks generally in the tank? What's going on? Why, why is there a disconnect it's between, the, it's between the, our, our... The rally theme? of everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean... The very interesting thing is you talked about predicting various different uh, problems a few years back. The one interesting thing is the financial markets never predict the future. That's the one great myth that you have these great, unbelievably wise, intelligent, analytical, scientific, unemotional, um, mathematical creatures that are in the markets uh, and they're discounting every now and that's nonsense. The markets, certainly the markets I worked in many years ago, we're full of these deeply human, deeply fragile, egocentric, but also beautifully um, influenced and influential people. So the idea that the markets tell us anything about the future, I think the only conclusion I can make after many decades of watching it is that's nonsense, that uh, deep down the markets are a herd, the herd gets giddy, and your giddiness affects my giddiness, and my giddiness affects the other fellow's giddiness and the other girls. And basically what you do is you have this extraordinary, extraordinary 
example of human fragility and human beauty. So we go up and we go down and we go up. So the first thing to ask, to answer your question, Kirk, is that markets, the vast majority of people are momentum investors. Mm. We're actually momentum creatures, okay? Mm. You know, the idea that the value investor is the norm, the person who looks at the balance sheet and does a sort of a very, very serious analysis of profits uh, and valuation. He's, he's the exception, she's the exception. The norm is the, is the, is the, is the Tesla momentum investor mm. who follows it up the hill because man, that's what you do. And in actual fact, we're, we're momentum creatures. You know, uh, the interesting thing is we would never have actually got out of the caves had we been value investors, <laughs> if you think about it. Yeah. So, so that's the first thing. Second thing clearly is this extraordinary um, and I think accurate approach to the pandemic, which is basically free money. Right. Uh, we are in a weird era, Kirk, where basically fiscal policy and monetary policy have become one and the same thing. So this is kind of, we're, we're now experiencing, you know, don't tell the Bernie wing of the Democratic Party this, but we're experiencing MMT through the back door, okay? Mm. And what's, so basically, basically what we have now is MMT for slow learners, okay? <laughs> and clearly what that is doing is it's cascading down free money into the market. And what do you do? You put it on the horse and you see where the horse goes. So yeah. that's what I think, so that's what I think is happening when you so, look at valuations. So you've got like mob legalized gambling, is that what it is? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's a fairly a fairly good way. But it's not only legalized gambling, but it's legalized and financed by others gambling, which is okay. even better if you uh, think about it. Uh, uh. You know, so, and, but, but of course, of course the problem is if you look at it in the societal perspective, and we should do that, that when you give away free money at the short end, okay? What you're actually doing is you're encouraging the most risky behavior mm. in the future. And you're penalizing the most parsimonious behavior now. So people like, let's say my mom, she's 85 years old. The reason I'm thinking about her now is because of COVID and if she gets it, it's, you know, so take someone like that. So she's never had, had owned a stock in her life. She's a retired school teacher. She has her deposits, her little deposits. And that's what, she is living off, as well as the pension here, et cetera. She has been penalized, okay? And Jeff Bezos has been rewarded. Now that is a recipe for political instability, which we can talk about. But you know, that's the way I see the world, rather yeah. more um, societal than just simply the, the financial numbers. How did that happen though, David? Because you know, I, I grew up on, on these on those assumptions that probably your mother grew up on, which was that if you um, wisely invested and did your duty, uh, that you know the market would work for you, that investments would work for you, and and that you didn't need to be this high flyer, you didn't need to be this massive risk taker. What happened? Well, I just it's that zero interest rates encourage risk taking, hmm. and positive real interest rates encourage or at least reward the riskier or the less risky investor. Mm. How it happened, I think, is a combination of history, sociology, ideology, politics. I mean, we can get into this, but uh, it's very, very clear to me that uh, after 2008, 
where the Fed decided, and again, rightly, because the question is, what would the world have looked like, certainly the United States, had they not uh, moved very quickly? And again, Ben Bernanke was a well-regarded student of the 1930s. And in the 1930s, the economy collapsed because of an adherence to the gold standard for too long by Roosevelt, and because when the moms and pops banks went bust in the United States, of which there were many, many hundreds, we forget that there were many, many, many hundreds of banks in the United States, all of them with very small balance sheets. When they went bust, what happened is what happens in a crisis all the time, Kirk, that people hoard, people get afraid, and they begin to hoard money. And once you hoard money, money disappears. And when money disappears, the economy collapses. So I think, you know, on both occasions, both the Bernanke put, so to speak, and now the new policy, which is, as I I would say, MMT by the back door, uh, both of those are predicated on saving the economy. And then, of course, Kirk, there's always the unintended consequences. And the unintended consequences of being, of rewarding, I'm not saying rewarding, of trying to push asset prices up in order to actually get people to spend, to coax them back to spend, to put a floor into the economy is inequality. That's, that's, and we see that coming time and again. And that comes back all the time in every election. Yeah. It, it characterized the American election this time, it characterized the French election, German, British. Um, and I suspect, too, the Canadian election, yeah. the, the, one, yeah. the one that Trudeau just won. And I want to talk about uh, a, a little bit about that in a, in a sec, but it, let's let's uh, stop here. You predicted Brexit, the 2008 crash, yes. and President President Donald Trump. Now, yes. we may need a forklift and the National Guard to evict him. <laughs> uh, but what's your assessment of his economic record as a president? Well, if I remember the Republican Party today, and I was looking at the legacy of Donald Trump. I think we've lost the Congress, we've lost the Senate, looks like, and we've lost the presidency. So that's a pretty open and shut market. When I say the market, I mean the people's assessment of what he did or didn't do. So the Republicans have gone uh, from being in power, very much so, to being out of power, very much so. Uh, that gives Biden an opportunity to probably be a little bit more Bernie-ish in policy. I mm. think what happened, the Democrats, any Democrats that I spoke to after the U.S. presidential election were quite clear that they thought the left had lost. That in actual fact, yes, Trump lost, but not by anything like the polls suggested. So as a consequence, the policies that were being articulated by AOC and Bernie scared some of the broad middle class and they held their noses and they voted for Trump despite all the moral uh, conundrums that Donald Trump presents. So let's think. So I think his his legacy is, is clearly very poor because he's lost everything politically. Mm. In terms of, and again, I'm not an American, but the culture wars that he seems very happy and very irresponsibly happy to stoke. Uh, If I were an American would scare me. Uh, I would think this is not the way in which the society should be evolving. And on the monetary side of things, 
He's expanded the deficits enormously. For example, if you think one dollar in every five that is circulating in the world has been printed in the last 12 months. So yeah. consider that. That's yeah. a phenomenal figure. Yeah, under, a- under a conservative president who's supposed to be uh, economically shackled, let's say, or at least ideologically uh, shackled. So my sense is that Donald Trump's legacy will not be economic. It will mm-hmm. be cultural. And I, I'd, I'd allow our American friends, and in my case, cousins, to uh, to pick up that baton and tell me where they think it's going to go. But mm-hmm. I, I do believe that Biden now has a better chance of governing in a more substantial way uh, with the latest figures from Georgia, the ones that at least I'm reading here from Ireland. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but the 2008 crash that you predicted left uh, incoming Barack Obama with quite a mess on his hands. And uh, what what mess has Trump left Biden, though? Well, I think he's left him a significant fiscal mess, if you're worried about that. Uh, I think he's left him an unbelievable job to try and do to bring the United States together as a political entity. He has destroyed any sense of trust in the international order, which America has benefited from enormously. Mm-hmm. What is extraordinary is America America set up all this stuff. You know, if you go back to the McKinnons and you go back to the post-war settlement, the United States set up the IMF, the World Bank, the United Nations. They got the rest of us to take their dollar as their currency, right? which was best exemplified by uh, Connors, who was the um, Nixon's treasury secretary, who said to the Europeans when they worried about the dollar, he said, it's our currency, but your problem. So the United States, I think, did very well out of the international order. Now, trying to dismantle that without anything to replace, it seems to me very difficult. I think what Biden will have to do is really build bridges with China, I don't think, and you guys live in Vancouver, and you know yeah. well, how significant have... the Chinese economy and Chinese wealth is to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a that's a big that's a big. His intray is full of stuff. Yeah, his, his intray is crazy, uh, and and but you say you know he he has this agency uh, now because he has the, the institutions, uh, the instruments of government, uh, largely uh, democratic now. Um, can he really deal with though with the big pieces like inequity, you know, like climate change, like even like reparations in America? Well, I think that uh, it's very clear that the the world is, has moved against fossil fuels. For example, even yesterday was announced the European Central Bank, uh, Christine Lagarde, the French head of the European Central Bank, suggested well, flew a flag. Okay that the ECB would no longer accept the collateral of fossil fuel companies. Mm. Now that's quite amazing. So she's saying, right. I think that uh, the four big, and I'm I'm sure in Canada, certain parts of Canada, this will be difficult to accept, but like there's there's four big areas of renewable energy. It's wind, it's wave, it's geothermal, and it's solar, because they're the only really renewable energies we're gonna get. And they will be uh, favored and jaundiced and biased towards in any administration, uh, which is not good for fracking, it's not good for oil, et cetera, et cetera. But you, know, you can't continue to 
Well, you can. I mean, there's nothing to stop you. You can continue to gouge out the earth, right? But it's not necessarily the policy that millennials who are driving policy agree with. And so there's a generational shift. And I, I can feel it in Ireland as well. There's a generational shift towards what's acceptable, what's not. So does Biden have a tailwind behind him? Yes, I think he does. Yeah. Inequity in the United States demands a wealth tax. It's quite obvious to me. Um, the, and it demands a wealth tax that is acceptable to most people. What is intriguing for a European is how poor Americans object to a wealth tax more than rich Americans. I, I can't figure that out. Um, and that goes back to the ideology and the culture war and the sort of person you identify with or you think about yourself as. Well, a lot of those people uh, uh, voted voted for Trump. They thought that that's what I'm saying. That Trump's I'm uh, saying. So, Trump's vision was going to be was going to pay off for them at some point. Well, again, if you look at the data, you're much more likely to be upwardly mobile socially in a heavily taxed West European country than you are in the United States. So, if you take out the Hollywood idea of the American dream and all that sort of stuff, which is part of like every society has its myths. Every society is broadly built on a phenomenal of national myths, which I'm not too sure, Kirk, many of them are true, but they're sufficiently true to get people to be to basically. But we know that, for example, social mobility in Ireland, Denmark, Sweden, Norway is much higher than in the United States. But our national myths are not about that. Mm. Part one of the discussion with David McWilliams, the Irish economist. Join us tomorrow for part two. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor in chief of Business and Banking.